Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. What motivates people to do what they do? Well, obviously, there are a number of motivations. I don't think there's any one answer to that question that fits all situations. Uh, For one thing, I think some people are motivated by a desire for pleasure. Uh, What motivates them is... uh, creature comfort. They hurry up to finish their work so they can lay down and relax. That doesn't motivate everybody, however. Some people are willing to forego the pleasure, at least for the moment, in order to gain possessions. They hurry up and work so they can work some more so they can gain things. Then, of course, there are those people who are not motivated by pleasure or by possessions. They're motivated by some kind of power they can wield over other individuals. Now, those are some of the motivations that motivate some of the people some of the time. Perhaps as Christians, we ought to ask, what should motivate a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, we have been studying the book of Romans, and as we have come into chapter 13... I have pointed out along the way that Paul mentions several different kinds of motivation. For example, in the early part of the chapter, in talking about submitting to government, he says that we ought to do that for wrath's sake. That's in uh, Romans 13, verse 5. Meaning, of course, that we ought to fear the punishment we could get from government if we broke some law of government. So there's a motivation, fear. Uh, Later in that same passage, he talks about uh, also being motivated to submit to government for conscience' sake. And that's also in verse 5. Again, that's a motivation. And the motivation is guilt, or perhaps we should say the lack. Of guilt. And then, immediately after discussing submitting to government, he goes into detail, beginning in verse 8, to discuss love. So that within a short compass within this passage, he discusses at least three different motivations fear, guilt, and love. But then, at that point in the passage, he mentions another motivation. And he expands this one in some detail. The fact that he only touched upon these others moving up to this, and that he went in such depth to discuss this other motivation, says to me that he considered this the most significant motivation of all. What should motivate the believer? Besides fear of punishment, or wanting to avoid guilt, or love, What motivation is there? 
Well, Paul tells us what should be, I think, one of the major motivations for the Christian at the end of Romans chapter 13. Will you look with me at that passage beginning at verse 11? Romans 13, verse 11 says, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, in this passage, Paul begins by giving us what I'm going to call a belief, something we as Christians believe. And then, based on that belief system, he suggests some behaviors that we ought to have. So just to organize our thoughts a bit as we move through this passage, I want us to begin by talking about this belief that is our motivation, and then how it should affect our behavior, or motivate, I should say, our behavior. Let's look at verse 11. He says, and do this. Now, let me just pause and point out that uh, the little word do is in italics, that in the Greek text, this just says, and this. It is rather abrupt. It is an idiom in the Greek text that is emphatically introducing this paragraph. Uh, many feel, as I do, that this is a pause in the argument. It is a pause to talk about what should motivate us, and that this probably goes all the way back to the first part of Romans chapter 12, if not further back, but at least that far back. Having said, we are to submit uh, to government, that we ought to present our bodies, that we ought to renew our minds, that we ought to use our spiritual gifts, all those kinds of things. He then says, and this. And then he announces, knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believe. The imagery is vivid. He is picturing Christians as if they had fallen asleep. Now that is a metaphor. It is a figure of speech of being inactive or slothful and he is saying look you know what time it is it's almost time for the alarm clock to go off it's morning wake up and he says in verse 11 and uh, knowing the time that it is high time to wake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed i think the great question that i have after i read that verse is he says i know the time and it's time to wake up. But the question is, what time is it? And to make the situation a little more complicated, he says in verse 11, the time is this. For now, here's the time, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
I think that strikes many as a rather puzzling statement because I thought the minute I believed, I got saved. Is that not true? All right, if, I got, if I got it, I mean, if when I believed, I got it, that's about as close as it can get, isn't it? Well, then how can you make the statement that it, then it's closer than when I first believed if when I first believed it got as close as it can get? Have I confused you? Well, let me explain. You know, I don't do a lot of repetition. Uh, that is deliberately. Uh, I try to stick real close to the text. You ever notice that? Uh, some Bible teachers will spend the first 20 minutes in the next sermon reviewing the last one. If you miss one, you miss it. You know? You've got to listen to the tape because I don't go back and repeat a lot. But it occurred to me as I was looking over this, I think there are a couple of things that I just keep saying to this congregation. And it's not because I, they're any hobby horse of mine. It's just that I keep bumping into them in the text. Uh, one thing I think I just keep saying is, in order to get to heaven, you've got to trust Jesus Christ. Do I say that a lot? Have you gotten that message? Do I keep saying it's a free gift? If I have a hobby horse, that, that, that's it. I, I really believe salvation is free and all you, that Jesus paid for it and all you have to do is trust him to get it. I, if I have a hobby horse, it's grace. I, that's it, all right? But I, I keep finding myself talking about the three tenses of salvation. Have I said that enough yet? Well, let me say it one more time, but this doesn't mean I won't say it again. All right? The Bible teaches, I have been saved, past tense. I am being saved, present tense, and I shall be saved, future tense. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin, and I shall be saved from the presence of sin. The theological words to describe this are, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification. I am being saved from the power of sin, that is sanctification. I will be saved from the presence of sin, that's glorification. That's a good thing to say in the book of Romans. That's what the book of Romans is all about. Now, Paul can make this statement that he is making because I have been saved and I got it. It is as close as it can get. But my salvation, future tense glorification is closer than when I first believed, obviously, because some time has lapsed and I'm closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, what verse 11 is saying is this. Hey, we know what time it is, right? We know that we are fast approaching the second coming of Jesus Christ. We know that we are closer to it now than when we first trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Look at the next verse. He says, verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Hmm. It's very interesting. He is viewing the present age as if it were night. And he is calling the day when Christ comes 
the morning, the day. Uh, by the way, this is real interesting. Let me, let me just, this is a footnote, all right? In 1 John, John calls the present age day. In Romans 13, Paul calls the present age night, all of which is to say that you can't say that every time you find a figure of speech in the Bible, it means the same thing in every passage because it doesn't. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the lion. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Satan is a roaring lion. All right. I just thought I'd throw that in. That's not, that, was a, that was a footnote. All right. Uh, what he is saying in this passage is the present age is night. And uh, we're getting close to the dawn. And he says in verse 12, the night is far spent. It's past bedtime. It's past mid-morning. Now, the little Greek word far spent means way advanced. Almost time for the alarm clock to go off. And he says, the day, the dawn, the daylight is at hand. A couple of things you've got to know here. The little expression in the scripture, the day, is repeated throughout the Old Testament, sprinkled through the New Testament. It means the day of the Lord. It's sometimes called in the Old Testament, that day. It's often called the day of the Lord. It is a reference to the prophetic time when Christ comes back and it's, it includes the tribulation period and the millennium. So what verse 12 says is, that day is at hand. Now, you look at those verses and you tell me what they mean. What is it that Paul believed that becomes his motivation, as he will explain in a minute? What is it that he believed that affected his behavior? Answer, he believed that Jesus Christ was coming back and that the second coming of Jesus Christ was imminent. It is at hand. Writing in the first century, he can say, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. That's very interesting. All of this is theologically called the doctrine of imminency, meaning the Lord could come back any minute. Now, that's what Paul is teaching here. Do you believe that? Let me tell you, many Christians do believe that. Historically, Christians have believed that. Did you know, did you know there are some Christians that don't believe that? Matter of fact, just recently, I heard um, some pretty well-known Christians get on the radio and talk about the fact that the idea that the Lord could come back before the tribulation period was a late idea. Did you hear that on the radio? And <laughs> I thought to myself, they're trying to say it started in 1830. Now, the doctrine uh, was officially kind of formed about 1830. But if you're going to start that kind of thing, let me just tell you that you could argue that the doctrine of justification by faith wasn't until 1500 either. You know, I mean, the Protestant Reformation formed that doctrine real clear to us. Look, look, the reality is the New Testament teaches the doctrine of the imminent coming of Christ. This 
passage teaches that Jesus Christ could come any minute. The imminent coming of Christ means it's pending. Paul can say the night is far spent. He could come any second. The alarm clock could go off and you'd have to wake up and you'd be in the day of the presence of the Lord. Now, what's that if it's not the imminent coming of Christ? You say, well, if it's that clear to you, why doesn't everybody else see it? Well, I'm going to tell you. It gets real interesting. Would you like to know what some of the commentaries say? I'm going to read you uh, the comment of a commentator, and this is one of the classic commentaries on the book of Romans. This is from a commentary. Now, this will be meaningless to some of you, but there are people listening to me who understand these sort of things. You'll be impressed. This is from Sandy and Hedlum. Now, they wrote what is one of the traditional, classic Greek commentaries on the book of Romans. This is a respected authority, folks. All right? Here's what they say. Talking about the language of these verses. The language is that befitting those who expected the actual second coming of Christ almost immediately. That's what the commentary said. The language used in this passage is befitting those who expected the second coming of Christ almost immediately. How else do you interpret that? The night is far spent. The day is almost here. How do you, how do you interpret that? It's at hand. Let me give you another one. You'll really get a kick out of this one. Now, this one is Cranfield. Doesn't mean a thing to you, does it? Those in the know know that Cranfield is the latest. I mean, they replaced, he replaced Sandy and Hedlum. He wrote two volumes on Romans. This is the most technical, respected commentary on Romans today. All right? Now, here's what he says. He's talking about the little phrase, at hand. Right? He points out that that same expression occurs in Mark 1.15. And he says, there it says, the kingdom of God is at hand. All right. He says this, the meaning of the kingdom of God is at hand, that is in Mark 1.15, is that the kingdom of God has come close to men and is now actually confronting them in the person of Jesus. I'm going to skip a line or two, and he says, the meaning here, meaning Romans 13, must be that the day is imminent. We might paraphrase verse 12, the night is almost over, the day is almost come. We have then in the first half of the verse an instant of the New Testament insistence on the nearness of the end. I mean, you just open your Bible and you read and it says the Lord is at hand, meaning he's right here. He can come any minute. Well, how do you explain that away? By the way, here's what Cranfield says. Next page. It is well known 
that very many scholars regarded as an assured result that the primitive church was convinced that the end would certainly occur within at least a few decades and that its conviction has been refuted by the indisputable fact of 1900 years of subsequent history, end of quote. In other words, what he's saying is, by the way, primitive church, he means New Testament church. What he is saying is, all the scholars agree that in the Bible they believe the Lord could come back any minute and uh, the fact that he didn't in the last 1900 years means the New Testament was wrong. Now what these men don't understand is the doctrine of imminency. Matter of fact, he goes on for pages. I'm not going to bore you, okay? Uh, he goes on for page after page, and he finally comes down and says, um, uh, here's his explanation of this phrase. It can't mean that Christ could come any minute. So he says, from the time when Christ once appeared, there is nothing left for the faithful to expect always uh, to look forward to his second coming with minds alert. There's nothing less to be fulfilled. You know, that's all he can do with it. Now, let me explain. Are you sufficiently confused? Does this text say the Lord is at hand? Does that mean it could happen any minute? All right, that's called the doctrine of imminency. And that means not that the Lord's going to come soon, but that his coming is pending. That's the key word. The language drives us to the conclusion that they expected the Lord to come back any minute. All the scholars agree with that. The ones that are looking at the text and looking at the language. And what they say is, well, they must have been mistaken because the Lord didn't come back. What they fail to understand is that just because he could have come back that minute doesn't mean that he said he would, that he could come back any minute from that minute till this minute. Let me illustrate. In the book of James, chapter 5, it says, The Lord is standing at the door. Now, there's a door. I want you to imagine that somebody is on the other side of it. And they have their hand on the doorknob. And I stand up here and tell you, whoever that is on the other side of that door is at the door. What does that mean? That means that he's poised and ready. His entrance into this room is imminent, meaning it is pending, meaning that any second he could turn the doorknob and jump in the room. Let me give you another possibility. He could stand out there for days. Right? Now what the text says is, I'm moving closer and closer to that event in time. It's nearer than when I first believed. Matter of fact, it seems the night is far spent. The day, the day, the day is at hand. I really don't know how close I am to that door. I really don't know, to change the figure, how close he is to opening the door and entering. I don't know, but what I do know is that it is at hand and it could take place any minute. You believe that? That's what Paul's teaching in this passage. By the way, it is that doctrine that originally drove me to the conclusion 
that the Bible teaches the imminent coming of Christ, thus the pre-tribulational coming of Christ. Because it seems to me, if I had to go through seven years of tribulation, I couldn't say, the Lord is at hand. I'd have to say, he's at hand right after seven years. Right? All right. This is the motivation for the Christian. Now, based on that belief, Paul gives some suggested behavior. He gives four things we are to do. He says in this text, number one, it is high time to awake out of sleep. Number one, the night is far spent. It's almost dawn. Number one, wake up. As I suggested a moment ago, the image is believers are asleep. They are inactive. They are slothful. And what he is saying is, I want you to wake up. What happens when you wake up? Well, you will be awake. You'll be alert. You will be active. That's what he's saying. I want you to wake up. What does it take to wake people up? My observation is that it depends on the person. There are some who are light sleepers. And then there are some who sleep like they have died. And it takes a major resurrection to get them up. I've hesitated to talk about this. But there are light sleepers in my family. And there is a heavy sleeper in my family. The heavy sleeper is a very interesting creature. We have tried numerous things to wake him, uh, I mean, that person up. <laughs> We've threatened to pour cold water on him. We have uh, ignited cannons beside his bed, grenades. We've run Sherman tanks through the room. He is very tough to awaken. But there are others in our family that are very light sleepers. A cat outside the window goes meow and they're hitting the floor wide awake. What's going on? Now it seems to me that spiritually there are people like that. There are some who are very light sleepers. And all that it will take for them to wake up is the alarm clock of a sermon from this passage of Scripture. And there are others who are very heavy sleepers. And I don't know what it'll take to wake you up. But Paul says, some of you are slothful, slumbering, inactive believers. And you need to wake up! It's almost morning. You might not have much more time to get things done. So wake up. Now, what do you do when you wake up? Second thing, look at verse 12. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. What does that mean? Well, in the imagery that he's using here, it means take off your pajamas. Isn't that what the text says? That's the Kokoros paraphrase, right? Look at it. Let us cast off the works of darkness. 
And he's using the imagery of sleeping at night and day. The works of darkness are your night clothes, your jammers. <laughs> matter of fact, the Greek word put off means just that. It was used to taking off a coat. So I'm in good, solid, exegetical ground here. Take off your jammers. I mean, you know, get rid of your night clothes. Well, what do you have in mind? Well, keep reading. He'll tell you. Look, he says, um, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy. Now, these are your night clothes designed for night life. There are three classes of sins, and there are two specifics in each class. There is intemperance and impurity. For he says, for example, not in revelry and drunkenness. The word revelry in Greek means uh, carousing. I read this and I thought of Van Nuys Boulevard and Whittier Boulevard, or whatever the name of the street is in whatever town you live in. Is there a street where all the where the nightlife takes place and they carouse and cruise and they drink and booze it up and buy drugs and pop pills? He says, look, that's nightlife. Those are night clothes. Take them off. Intemperance. Then he says, impurity also ought to go. Not in licentiousness and lewdness. Licentiousness the Greek word literally means bed. And this is obviously a figure of speech for sex. And lewdness. The Greek word means excess. Boy, does that fit Van Nuys Boulevard? Is that a description of Whittier Boulevard? You know? Years ago it used to be Mulholland Drive. Right? Some of you remember that? Show your age. What's he saying? What's he saying is, before you became a Christian, you participated in carousing, we'd call it cruising, drunkenness, sex, to excess. Now put all that off. That belongs to the night. Those are your pajamas. It's almost day. I want you to act like it is. Get rid of that. Isn't it great to preach like that? I mean, people who do that don't come to church, right? So you can sit here and feel so nice. You know? You don't feel a bit convicted, right? Well, we haven't finished the list yet, so don't, don't, you're not going to get off quite that clean. There's another list. Discord. He talks about strife and envy. Strife means contention. And this Greek word translated envy actually means jealousy. <laughs> Any contention in your family? Any contention in your marriage? Any jealousy in your heart? How about envy? Now all those are night clothes made for night life that you ought to put off. I mean stop. Now the minute he mentions those kinds of things, I think this is only a suggested list and that you could go to a passage like Galatians 5 and find an expanded list of all kinds of works of the flesh 
Here they're called works of darkness, which need to be put off. So, what he's saying is, the Lord is coming back, that's daylight, that's dawn, and so I want you to wake up, and I want you to take off your pajamas. Third thing I want you to do. He says, verse 12, let us put on the armor of light. All right, I'm going to suggest that the third thing he wants you to do is he wants you to take off your night clothes and he wants you to put on your day clothes. Matter of fact, the Greek word translated put on was used of putting on a coat. Only here he says put on the armor of light. You took off the works of darkness, so put on the armor of light. Now, the Greek word translated armor means armor, and this translated armor in some other passages. It's also possible for this word to be translated by other words like instrument of light or tools of light. And some have pointed out that in this context, there isn't the imagery of defense or warfare as there is in some of those other passages, and that this very word was translated instrument in chapter 6 of Romans. And so that perhaps Paul is not talking about armor as much as he is just talking about put on those things that are instruments of light or tools of light. Let's just call it day clothes. Put on your day clothes. Now when he told us to take off our night clothes, he gave us a suggested list as to what that's included. And uh, now I want to know what's included in uh, my day clothes. Well, I think you need to drop down to verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What you are to put on is Jesus Christ. Now, the scripture gives us characteristics of Christ throughout the Gospels. It tells us that he was meek and lowly in heart. Uh, I think Galatians chapter 5, when it gives us the fruit of the Spirit is as fine a description of what God wants us to be as any list in all of the New Testament. Remember that? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. I am particularly impressed that that list would fit here because of what he's talked about in terms of uh, the other things he listed, which are also in Galatians 5, under the works of the flesh. So I am going to suggest that while many things may be involved in the things that you are to put on, the first and foremost thing you are to put on is Jesus Christ, and the first and foremost characteristic of Jesus Christ is the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that would fit perfectly with what he has said, not only in the immediate context of chapter 13, but also in the context of the section Romans 12 and 13. So, wake up, put off your pajamas, put on the day clothes, make up your mind that what you're going to do is put on Jesus Christ and you are going to love. That's what he's saying. By the way, he says, and don't make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The Greek word provision is fascinating. It means forethought. It means to care for. As a matter of fact, it has to do with your mind and perhaps recalls Romans chapter 8 that talked about being mindful of the things of the flesh 
are mindful of the things of the Spirit. So what he is saying is, I love it, take off your pajamas, get out of bed, put on the day clothes, and don't plan to go back to bed. Don't make provision for the pajamas. Burn them. Throw them away. The idea here is that you're going to get up in the morning, you're going to put on your day clothes to walk through the day, and I assume you plan to keep those clothes on all day, and at lunchtime you're not going to say, well, it's time to put on my pajamas again. Matter of fact, I would say that following the imagery of this passage, you ought to put off your pajamas once and for all, and we're almost about to approach the day, and when the day comes, Jesus is going to come back, and you ought not plan on any clothes, changing clothes all day. You know what I think is the problem? I think some Christians get up in the morning, they put off their pajamas, and using the imagery of this passage, they put on their day clothes, and by 9 o'clock they change back in their pajamas. At 10 o'clock they get convicted, put on their day clothes, and, you know, and throughout the day they keep swapping clothes back and forth. You're doing too many clothes changing. You need to put on the day clothes and keep them there. There's one other thing he suggests you do, and that is in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day. You are to wake up, you are to put off your pajamas, you are to put on your day clothes, and fourthly, you are to walk properly as in the day. Now, in the imagery of this passage, it is night. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. We're not in the day yet, right? But what he is saying is, I want you to put on the day clothes as if it is already come. And I want you to walk as if the day had already come. I want you to walk properly, he says. The word properly means befitting. I want you to walk fittingly, becomingly of the day. And the day, of course, is the day when Jesus Christ comes back. All of which brings us to the end of the passage and puts the passage beautifully together. You see, there are two main basic thoughts here. He first develops the idea that we are living in the night. The day is almost here. At dawn, Jesus comes. And because I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and could come back at any moment, then I am motivated to wake up, take off the night clothes, put on the day clothes, and walk properly. I submit to you that that is the motivation for the believer. That his incentive is that he is going to see Christ and when he does, he is going to be like Christ. And therefore, he ought to put on Christ right now. May I repeat that? This is so important. The believer is going to see Christ. When he sees Christ, he's going to be like Christ. And therefore, he ought to put on Christ right now. 
What motivates you? I suspect all kinds of things motivate you as all kinds of things motivate me. No one motivation fits every situation. I understand that. But I'm going to tell you, in my better moments, remember what motivates me? What I just told you. You ever feel like quitting? You ever feel like just checking it in and going back to bed? Did you ever get out of bed some mornings and think, you know, some mornings it just doesn't pay. I'm going to go back to bed. I got out of my bed this morning. Sitting beside my bed was my briefcase. Last night, I had shut it. But I didn't snap it shut. And this morning, I grabbed it and everything came out. And I was in a big hurry. And I said to my wife, I hope this is not prophetic of what my day is going to be like. Did you ever get out of bed some days and it just all went wrong? Did you? What'd you feel like doing? Going back to bed. Well, I don't ever go back to bed, though I feel like it. Maybe I should. But um, I'm going to tell you why I don't. A couple of things. Years ago, I don't know who taught me this. Years ago, I figured out, I think from just studying the Bible, that what this thing is all about is that what God is trying to do is conform me to the image of Christ. Is that what this is all about? Then it doesn't matter what happens, right? Doesn't matter what anybody says about me. Doesn't matter what happens to me. As a matter of fact, knowing that, I can know I'm going to have some pretty bad days. Right? And when I make these little mental adjustments, I sit down and talk to myself. That's okay, just so you don't answer back. I talk to myself. Then I just remember what God promised you was that life was full of trouble, but that he uses trials to conform you to Christ. And then I think, now, Kokoros, before you make any hasty decisions, just remember, one of these days, you're going to stand before the Lord, and you're going to have to give an account of him of what you did in this situation what you said in this situation. So just remember, it could be today. Now, I want you to know I haven't always done this. There are days when I act and then I remember what I should have done. But in my better moments, when I have time to think about it, this really has, this really has affected me. I really do believe the Lord could come back today. I definitely believe that what life is about is to conform us to the image of Christ. So it really doesn't matter what happens. What happens, what matters is that I respond properly so I can be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen? Now, let me tie this together. This section of Romans has just overwhelmed me with... Uh, 
all of the incentives and motivations that it touches. Let me, let me put it all another way. I think within these two chapters, and they are a unit, that he mentions a motivation from the past, a motivation in the present, and a motivation for the future. Start out this section. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's that? Because of the past experiences you've had with the mercy of God, I want you to present your body a living sacrifice, and I want your mind to be renewed. He gets into chapter 13, and he says you ought to submit to government. Why? For wrath's sake. What's that? Fear that you will get punished. That's present. And for conscience sake, what's that? Guilt. Or avoiding guilt. And I want you to love. Love works no ill toward its neighbor. Go love. Don't owe no man anything but to love one another. All of those are present motivations. But he gets down to the end of this section. Beginning in chapter 14, he starts a whole new subject. These two chapters are the general practical chapters of the whole book of Romans. And he says, hear me, the great motivation is the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Our salvation is closer than when we believed. Christ is coming. And when he comes, we're going to see him and we're going to be like him. We're going to stand before him and give an account. So the great motivation for the believer is not just the past, though that's there. And it's not just the present, though that's there. It's not just fear, though that's legitimate in some situations. And it's not guilt, though that's legitimate, properly understood. And it's not just love, though that's a great motivation for the believer. But the ultimate, all-consuming motivation is the one in the future. I'm going to stand before him. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to be like him. And that ought to motivate you to wake up. Put off the night clothes. Put on the day clothes. And walk as if it's already day. During the Civil War, Sherman made his famous march from Chattanooga through Atlanta all the way to the sea. Right in the middle of that march, the Confederate Army installed a new general, someone named General Hood. He was an impetuous fellow. He decided to take Sherman on. So he immediately gathered some troops and maneuvered around to the back flank of Sherman's forces. A message was sent through the troops to Sherman. He immediately ordered that they send a man named Corse to meet Hood. And then Sherman himself started moving toward the rear of his troops. He got to one very high mountain where he could see some distance in the future and he could uh, see the smoke of battle. He could, uh, 
hear the reverberations of cannon fire. And he did not know if Hood had a tank, his rear flank, and his rear flank was in trouble, or if the reinforcements had made it there in time under Commander Course. But on that mountain, a flagman signaled Sherman. The message that came over hill and dale through the Tennessee mountains was, Course is here. Sherman was greatly relieved because then he knew with those reinforcements they could hold off Hood. And so he ordered the flagman to send a message back. And the message he sent to Course was this. Hold the fort. I'm coming. A man in the troops told a man named P.P. Bliss that story. And as a result of hearing it, he wrote the hymn. Hold the fort, for I am coming. There is no finer way that I think I could say to you what is the great, all-consuming motivation of the believer. Hold the fort, for Jesus said, I am coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending us your son the first time so that we could have the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for sending him again so we can be with you. May this truth affect our lives. We walk as if it is day. We walk in light of the fact that your son may come at any moment. In his name I pray. Amen.